Okay, we're live. Hey, hey, everybody, how you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. This is episode number 154. And I'm really pleased to have two guests with me today. Um, we have Amy Tobia and Nick Neal from Represent Us, the San Diego chapter. And we're going to talk about removing corruption in politics. And man, these, these folks have some great ideas, great policy um, uh, proposals and some success stories. And I just thought this would be a great topic to explore. So Amy and Nick, how are you guys doing? Great. Doing well. All right. Well, welcome. And thanks for joining us. So um, Amy, do you, maybe you could kick it off and tell us a little bit a little about your organization and represent us. Sure. Um, well, as you said, we're the local chapter of a national organization. Um, my name is Amy Tobia, and I'm a volunteer with that local chapter. Um, Represent Us Nationally is a nonpartisan organization, and we focus on, as you said, anti-corruption laws. Um, specifically, our goals are to stop political bribery, end secret money, and fix our broken election system. We have most of our policy uh, proposals in what's called the American Anti-Corruption Act. Um, and in the past few years, our chapters nationally have been involved with initiatives um, and have passed over 114 anti-corruption-related election reform initiatives all across the country um, through partnerships um, with other coalitions like the ones that we have joined here in San Diego. And our goal is to amplify the voice of the voters and make sure that our elections are very voter-centered. So um, as the local chapter, what we do is we look at all the uh, uh, available options to us out of the Anti-Corruption Act, and we decide what does San Diego need? What's going to push San Diego forward in this anti-corruption and, and reform initiative? And chapters around the country do the same. And our goal is, is if we advance things like ranked choice voting and public financing of elections and anti-corruption and anti-gerrymandering laws at the city level and the state and local level, then at some point we will finally see the federal change that we really need. Right on. Yeah, I, I think we're starting to see in, in various parts of the country ranked choice voting, um, you know, being implemented at the city level and in some cases at the state level. So mm -hmm. it's great to see. I think you have to start at that local level and kind of mm -hmm. work to move it up to the, the federal level. Yep. Well, yes, well Nick, exactly. Nick, you're joining us, um, you know, long distance. Um, how you doing out there? Yeah, that's right, man. I'm joining you guys all the way from uh, about nine time zones away. I'm here in Prague uh, in Czech Republic, so Central Europe for those who aren't familiar. And uh, yeah, but I've been um, following Represent Us for about nine years at this point. Uh, you know, before it was even called Represent Us, it was called the AntiCorruptionAct.org. Uh, we didn't have Represent Us at that point, and uh, it morphed into a different uh, organization called United Republic, which eventually transformed into Represent Us as we currently know it. Um, you know, I jumped on board around the same time that Occupy started up because I was kind of um, getting a little frustrated with the status quo and the, the establishment of the way things are going, and, and I wanted to see some something different. I wanted to see something change. I knew that there were some systemic issues going on with our government, and, uh, you know, it didn't seem like like anything was really changing and it didn't seem like my voice really mattered so um <laughs> and then i also realized in occupy no matter how much we got accomplished it wasn't really you know gonna really mount to much so i needed to start thinking about what i could do personally uh that i can be involved with that's gonna uh create the most effect and uh i started really thinking about I mean, all the issues that i care about and i thought okay you know what 
I could do this issue, I could do this issue, I could do this issue, but what can I do that sets the stage for all of those issues? What can I do that frees people up and allows them to participate in the system and actually hear, get, be, be heard uh, for what they really care about? Um, and that's when I started finding, uh, I found the Anti-Corruption Act at the, the Occupy site, and I've just been following it ever since, helped start up the San Diego chapter, it morphed in and out of consciousness for a few years until its current manifestation has just been, you know, on and running real strong for a number of years now, and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. It's a nice wave to ride. This is great. This is I think what you guys are doing is so fantastic because the current model is you could say it's corrupt. You can say that it's it's distorted. It's dysfunctional. I mean, maybe to you, Amy, in your opinion, what is the number one issue that if you could wave a magic wand, you'd like to solve to make the government and processes less corrupt? So I think that's a really good question because everybody is looking for that silver bullet, that one policy reform that will magically heal our system. Um, The challenge is, even if you fixed, let's say, for example, you got money out of you were able to get rid of dark money. So all money was disclosed. There were lobbying limits and you solved that problem. You would still have states with districts that are so gerrymandered that they're completely non-competitive when it comes to representation. You would still have, you know, cities where you could still, even though it was very public, still buy an election. So I don't think you would be able to do one thing and solve the problem. That's because the system is so broken on every level. Um, You need to make it easier for people to run um, based on their merit and not their ability to fundraise. Um, you need to make it easier for everybody to know where the money is coming from and put lids on that. Like you need to do too many things to fix the system for there to be like a single solution. If I could w- wave a magic wand, I would make it so that everyone in the country understood how broken the system was, because then I think we could actually see change if people actually understood the problem and realized that we could all band together to fix it. Um, but our politicians aren't going to do it. It's, it's not it's not important to them. We are going to have to do that. So if I could fix one thing, it would be national awareness. Yeah, I, I think the the politicians, they want to maintain the status quo because it protects their power structure and their influence and their wealth. And it, um, you know, the system is set up to their benefit. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be hard to get them to change. It's going to have to be forced upon them. Yeah. What's interesting is I I have I have I'm 100% in agreement, but I also have this feeling that there are actually a lot of people involved with politics that would like to be good uh, representatives, but because the system is so dysfunctional that they have to actually adapt and warp their own ethical morals in order to be able to fit into the system. So I, I, the way I view this, this campaign that we're running with Represent Us is I really feel that we're there to help free the politicians up from the system so that they can actually do what they were signing up to do originally, um, mm-hmm. which is to represent us. It's, it's to be able to be the voice of the people. And right now, I don't think they're able to, even if they want it to. And that's the sad thing is like a lot of people have this negative opinion on politicians. I think it's okay that some people get into politics for power. It's like hopefully that would be a minority, but we would hope that people really want to get involved because they want to, you know, serve their country, right? And uh, and to serve the people. And so, yeah, I, I, I would I would say that it's a little bit of both. 
And the good news is, is, you know, this freight train that we're on right now would represent us doesn't seem like it's going to be slowing down or stopping. And, uh, and it's just a matter of time, in my opinion. It's, it's, and the good news is that we don't have to wait for politicians to pass it. Uh, like, like Amy mentioned earlier, we start with a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, you know, legislation here in the local San Diego city with uh, ranked choice voting, which is the recent initiative that we've been pushing the most. Um, once we get that, then we're going to be able to get some more representation already automatically with that new law, which helps the next law to be accomplished here in the San Diego level. And it just spreads. It's been it's a time tested formula. It seems to work. And yeah, I'm I'm confident that it's going to work and I'm excited about it. And it's it's a very hopeful uh, thing to be a part of, namely because um, I'll just I'll finish with this this one last point. It's, I just I'm so excited. That it's, it's hard to contain it. Um, <laughs> I've been kind of <laughs> I've been mostly uh, working with like the social media platforms as the uh, as the part of our San Diego chapter. And so for the last, I think, I think maybe four or five years. I've joined up with like Facebook groups all, of all different political types. So I've been in, I'm in, I'm currently still in all the major San Diego conservative groups, all the progressive groups, the Bernie Sanders groups, the Tea Party groups, the Green Party groups, the independent groups, like every single group that's out there. And I'm throwing out this message like, hey, come join our Represent Us chapter. And it's like, it's so universal that nobody knows what my political ideology is personally, because you know, they're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, let's do that. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited that it's nonpartisan and that it, it, it unites people in a time when we're so divided as a country that it's it's just, man, I'm so tired of these Facebook arguments. You know, I'm just <laughs> right. I just I'm, it's so nice to have something where I'm like, oh, we all agree on this. Let's 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 work on this together. But I, I would say the one thing that's the issue is that it's hard to get people excited about it like I am. Um, mm -hmm. Most people are so passionate about these other ideas that are so important, but they don't realize that those ideas aren't going to be heard by that person unless something else happens. And this is that something else. So I agree with Amy. My one thing, uh, if, if I could vote for any candidate or if I could have any major change, if they could just spearhead you know, blowing up the whole country on this specific issue, that would be it. You know, um, that's that's honestly, I think the most important thing right now is just to get the awareness out there that this thing is so important to transforming everything else we all care about. Well, if we could, let's let's go do a deep dive on a couple of the topics. And I think we, we mentioned ranked choice voting, and I think a lot of our viewers and listeners may not really understand what that means. And I've talked a bit about it on my podcast on previous episodes, but I'd love to hear your explanation of what ranked choice voting is and why this would be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, ranked choice voting has a couple of goals, and it's going to be really exciting in the next few months to see the number of state initiatives that are going to be on the November ballot around the country with ranked choice voting on them. So if a couple of these get passed, you're going to start to see Maine is not going to be the only state that uses ranked choice voting nation or statewide. Um, and so we could end up with, if we're super lucky, you know, four or five states um, that use it at the state level, which would be very exciting. Um, but ranked choice voting, the idea behind it is as an individual, 
um, I usually know not just what my first favorite of something is, but what my second favorite of something is. And when we go to the polls and we have a choice of A or B, and in some states where they have closed primaries, um, you know, you're going to vote that party person. Um, so you have to choose um, between two very polar opposite candidates quite, on, quite often. Um, the idea behind ranked choice voting is, is people are more nuanced than that. Usually, you know, your first, second, third and fourth favorite. And so rather than just pick one, you're able to vote your preferences across the slate of candidates. By doing that, you're changing the tone of every part of that campaign. As a candidate, you're no longer going to find mudslinging as your most effective tool. Um, in fact, in ranking campaigns, that is one of the least effective tools. You're going to campaign on issues and you're going to campaign. If you can't be somebody's first choice, you want to be their second or you want to be their third. So your focus on outreach and, and community engagement is just very transformed by the ranking process. As a citizen, um, voting is one of the only times where you have such a limited choice, right? Most of the time, everything else in your life, you have more choice and more opinions. Yes. I now can become a little bit more engaged. Yeah, maybe my first choice candidate didn't make the cut and isn't going to be in that general election, but I can rank everyone so I can be fully heard and fully expressed. Um, if I really like someone and maybe they're newer in the political sphere and I think they're fantastic, but I'm nervous about their chances because they haven't built as enough momentum yet, I can still give them my vote and maybe boost them for a future campaign um, while making sure that I'm not um, overly increasing the chances of my least favorite candidate. Um, the other thing is, as candidates, once they're in office, they know that they are legislating underneath the auspice of having this broader array of support, right? They also know that if they don't listen to that broader way of support, they're more likely to be held accountable um, than being you know, more insulated. So it just changes the nature and the dynamic of our election so easy, so much with such a simple change. You still go and you vote, but you rank instead of pick one. Um, and so we think it's a pretty transformative way to impact the outcome of our elections. Yeah, I, I get the sense that, you know, especially at the presidential level, because that's the one everyone focuses on, is some people feel like these are my two choices and mm -hmm. I'm having to essentially pick the lesser of evils, yeah. you know, right. and I, I don't like that candidate, but I really don't like the other one. So <laughs> I'm going to have to pick the guy that I can stomach because yeah. I can't part. I cannot have the other guy. Um, yeah. And. And meanwhile, there's always like third party candidates, independent candidates that have something to offer. But people feel like if they voted for them, they would be wasting their vote. So yeah. the ranked choice voting seems to solve a lot of those dynamics. Yeah, the, the engagement aspect of it just cannot be overlooked. Um, mm -hmm. it, and it also will give everyone running a truer picture of what the electorate really wants. Because yes. you're not just getting who they picked for that final outcome. You're getting a real menu of, of uh, political solutions and policies um, because that's what people are going to be voting on. Yeah. And I think more more like just to your point, John, like what this does is it it really lessens the power and the stranglehold that the two party system has. Right. It allows for so many more voices to be heard. And then people can just really vote their conscience and vote for who they feel like is the most ethical, who really represents themselves. And they don't have to be afraid that, oh, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm going to be basically getting somebody who I don't want uh, elected because I'm voting who 
my conscience, which is just horrible that right now we can't vote for who we honestly feel like is our best vote because we know it's it's at this point in time not actually helping anything. And uh, yeah, that's I think that's the strongest thing that ranked choice voting does is it helps us really as uh, as voters be heard. And that's, I think, the most important part of this whole campaign is represent us. It's like, oh, how do we get more representation? Well, this is just one one way we do that. And it's a beautiful way. It's again, I think that's the reason why as a chapter in San Diego, we started with this idea because it's so it's so easy to get. It's so yes. catchy and it's such a profound, simple change that sets the stage for so many other things we can do. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember like remember in the year 2000 when it all came down to the hanging chads in Florida and many progressives voted for Ralph Nader and mm-hmm. People blamed them for not voting for Gore, which then ultimately put Bush in office. But if there was a ranked choice system, then I think those voters could have voted for Nader and then had Gore as their second choice. Mm -hmm. And from a liberal perspective, things might have turned out differently. Mm -hmm. Well, and even, you know, in places where you have a large majority population where they all lean towards one uh, party or another, mm-hmm. when you have three or four candidates running who are all of the same political persuasion, that's not necessarily, you know, good for your party and good for your voters. No. Um, but so there's really, you know, the nice thing is, is this is so good for voters. Um, but, you know, the party and the majority should still feel like it's not going to going to um be bad for their their necessarily their constituents so um like i said it's going to be very exciting you know maine just finished their second statewide election where they used it for state and federal office um the interesting thing of course is they're continually challenged with court cases um, where people are wanting to take this away even though they voted overwhelmingly two times now to keep it Um, and even though the signature gathering fell short a judge is going to actually allow that to be contested one more time in spite of the fact that the opposition did not get enough signatures that just came out last week Um, you've got it running in arkansas and alaska um, right now in the in state of massachusetts and i think north dakota just got it on the ballot as well that's crazy and so, but every single one of them, not only do they have to work and struggle to get on the ballot, they then have to contest it in court because people are so adamant that um, we not change things. Um, so it's, it's a threat a to their battle. power structure. Mm-hmm. It's a double battle for activists. Yeah. So. Hey, um, we did get a, we have a question that came in on the YouTube channel, and this is uh, from from Pete in Poway. And Pete asks, um, does represent us support local level candidates, say for city council? Uh, so represent us does not do candidate endorsements. Um, we do uh, when we're working on an initiative, because, again, we're nonpartisan. Um, we do if we know a candidate supports one of our initiatives, we like to post that and say this candidate supports an initiative that we're working on. Um, but as far as endorsements, no, because we are, again, we're non nonpartisan. Um, so we know we have to work with candidates, but endorsement would kind of cross that line. That makes sense. Um, hey, let's let's jump over and let's talk about gerrymandering, because um, this yeah. is always a crazy one. We've seen those maps that look yep. like uh someone threw spaghetti against the wall. Um, 
can you maybe just for our viewers and listeners sort of set it up? You know, what is the issue with gerrymandering? Um, how do we get to this place and what's the best way to solve it? So gerrymandering is actually, I would say, Nick, you probably see this on our Facebook feed all the time. One of the issues that gets people most excited about joining Represent Us on the national level, it's more of an issue um, in California, we don't have as big of a problem with it because we do have independent redistricting. Um, But at its heart, gerrymandering is basically the idea of using math and designing districts that are um, predetermined. So instead of it being a competitive district where any candidate has a chance, it's predetermined that that's going to be a red district or a blue district. It's already decided based on the math and how the lines are drawn to put a voting block together. Um, It is something that um, unfortunately has been in our history across the spectrum and across states um, for a long time. It has gotten worse in recent years, although it does tend to swing back and forth. And and the cure for it is, like I said, independent citizen-led districting uh, solutions, which is is something that uh, California has implemented to make sure that we have fewer districts that are, you know, foregone conclusions, right? Our political system needs to be competitive to be fair. And when your vote doesn't matter because your district is gerrymandered to the point that you have absolutely no influence, um, it disenfranchises, you know, many, many people and many, many voices. So one of the big campaigns um, that people have been so excited about and has been so inspiring in the past few years was the campaign that that Michigan led um, with Katie Fahey's group, We the People, um, where they did an all-volunteer-led organization to get signatures to put anti-gerrymandering on the ballot. And they collected 480,000 signatures with volunteers, which is astonishing when you think about that work effort. Um, And they did, like you said, they made wooden figures of these crazy gerrymandered districts and showed them to people. And people just, you see that visually and you immediately get the problem. So that's one of the things about gerrymandering, why it drives such interest in democracy reform, because it's so obviously unfair and people just get it right away. Um, And so they have been a really great one to follow. And there's several other um, states. I believe Virginia um, has some uh, legislation on the ballot and several other states that are pushing at that because right now we're in the middle of our census. So right after census, all of the districts get redrawn. And so now is the time if you do not implement independent citizen-led redistricting to make sure that it is fair and equitable and creates good competition, then you, you, you lose it for 10 years. So it's a very timely and important, you know, element of represent us nationally. They have um, a lot of focus on that right now. You know, it's interesting is here, even at the local level in the city of Poway, um, both our city council as well as our school district have recently switched from at-large voting to district voting. Mm -hmm. And the city council and then the school board were the ones that chose where to draw the lines. Mm -hmm. And they had independent demographers and attempting to try to get a good balance and Mm In our city of Poway, they seem to do a reasonably good. uh, um, It was reasonably good. I mean, we Mm -hmm. can nitpick it, but at the school district level, oh my God, it was unbelievably gerrymandered to support you know keeping the existing uh, school board Mm -hmm. members in place. So it's interesting how it's not just for Congress that we see gerrymandering, but even at the micro local Mm -hmm. level, it's a big deal. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, let's um, let's go to like another topic. And this is one that people throw around all the time. And they say we need to get money out of politics. And you know, that's obviously a, a broad sweeping claim. And I know that on your website, you've got a lot of things about, you know, getting, you know, preventing money coming from lobbyists and banning lobbyists, bundling and no fundraising during working hours. And maybe how how do you think would be the right approach, maybe the first step to getting money out of politics? Oh, man, there's so many first steps you can take. Um, did you have do you want to start with this one, Nick? And then I have some ideas about the public financing initiative that I'd like to share after that. Well, that's actually what I was thinking, too. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, there's like the democracy dollars and like the publicly funding of campaigns or giving some sort of credits that, uh, you know, uh, you know, any there's so many different ways to do it. But they're all kind of aimed at the same idea, which is that if you allow a candidate to receive these credits that uh, people are able to give without having, to, you know, to donate any of their personal money, but they're just granted credits uh, in an election of some kind, they can then move those credits towards a certain candidate that's, uh, you know, willing to accept that if they're not going to take on, um, you know, you know, pack money and all these other uh, things. Uh, so, yeah, in general, what it does is it allows the, the people to be represented by that candidate a little bit more. And so once that candidate is elected, there's not really um, a special interest that they have to be kind of beholden to. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not like, hey, someone's going to be like, hey, I gave you like a lot of money. I want you to take this bill and I want you to pass this law that benefits me. And, and I don't really care about the people. It, it, it kind of lessens the that from happening. I mean, there's no way to really just like cut it out completely. But if you start to shift the focus over to, hey, this is another possibility. This is another way of doing things. And it's not threatening so much that the establishment freaks out, but it allows enough competition to enter that, you know, is, you know, the average, you know, or again, we could do average donations of like, you know, a smaller amount, give somebody like a hundred dollar credit on a national level. They can give that hundred dollars. That's tax, you know, redeeming. There's so many different ideas, um, and I think in San Diego we were we were uh, we were having some coalition partners where we were trying to uh, uh, get some democracy dollars passed here in San Diego, which is kind of the idea that we we ended up going with. So I think I think big you, you've got the national level again, and then you've got the little the local level, right? Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about our political process is every city and state across the country has different requirements for running for office, and the way that they control or don't control that fundraising really kind of defines how you get established in the political world. Because if you think about it, the people who run for city council and school board today, they're the ones who are running for state office and then federal office, right? I mean, most candidates, you know, you want them to have some ground level experience most of the time before they run for a higher job. Um, and so you kind of want to grow them up in a system that encourages, you know, the kind of behavior that the voters are looking for. So one of the ideas around um, getting money out of politics is you really have to look at each city. You know, the city of San Diego actually has pretty decent limits on what you can give. They don't have limits on outside expenditures, which is an area that we could look at. But then you look at the city of Carlsbad, 
you can give unlimited amounts. They don't have caps on what you can give. So it's such a hodgepodge around the country that one of the things you could do is try and create more um, more even caps on what could be donated at the local level. Um, the other thing you could do is, again, this idea of public financing of elections. And this is always a struggle for people because we've done it this way for hundreds of hundreds of years um, where you approach this as in order to run for office. And I don't know if you guys have ever taken one of those classes where they teach you how to run for office. I've taken a few of them to work on campaigns, not for myself, but almost every one of them, the second exercise you do is to write a list of how many people you can get a thousand dollars from. That, that is, it's not, what's your policy? Why are you running? What's your story? Second action is write this list to get money. And what that does is that immediately discounts the value and opinion and possibility of so many people who would be good elected officials um, because you're creating this barrier. So not only do you need support from certain people, you also need all this money. So public financing, the idea behind it is, you know, we're a city that has a $4.3 billion budget. In order to get on our council or be our mayor, the first thing that you have to do is to be a good fundraiser. And the idea behind public financing is the first thing you have to do is be a good candidate. And you give every citizen in the city um, $100 in democracy dollars to give to the candidate of their choice, which does two things. It allows candidates to run who maybe would not have that opportunity because they can't write that list, right? It'll introduce new ideas and new energy into the campaign because you're making it more open for people who want to participate in the program. But the thing that's happened in Seattle that I find the most exciting is they went from having about 8,000 people in their city donating to candidates. And remember, the donors are the people who decide who runs. Like, we might get a vote, but we're voting based on what's already been decided for us. Right. We went from 8,000 donors to 38,000 donors in two election cycles. Like, that kind of phenomenal increase in civic engagement for, you know, what amounts to like $6 million a year on a $4.3 billion a year city budget. Um, to me, that's pretty phenomenal um, and could be incredibly transformative. So um, there's a number of places around the country that are looking at public financing, either through democracy dollars or through clean elections or through um, uh, matching funds. And there legislation that had been proposed, including uh, HR1 last year in the House, actually had both programs in it, pilot programs for both to try and expand them to the state and federal level. So one of the ways to get money out of politics is to think about it differently and to think about the fact that if you're going to take this job, you know, why wouldn't we want a candidate, you know, that we had kind of grown up in this type of a system instead of the one that we have now. So again, it goes back to kind of changing the system. And then those candidates get in the office and they move forward and they're used to doing that. So then you could make it state, then you could make it federal. um, And then you could get all of those people more engaged in the political process because now they got a horse in the race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. It's back in 2014, I was a candidate for school board and uh, came up a little short, but um, I was blown away by the fact that as a school board candidate, there were no limits on what people could donate. Yeah. Um, in our in our local city at the time, it was a cap of one hundred dollars of, of the maximum donation. But for school board, we could get we could take a, a check from a, from a million dollars from a company or a person. It didn't matter, and it was I was amazed by that. Yeah. Um, but yeah. let, let's just say that there's a a democracy dollars system, and 
that's how it's that's how campaigns are funded. What's to prevent a candidate from accepting money from other sources? So I guess mm-hmm. it would have to be policed, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's uh, in Seattle. They police it with the Ethics Commission. Um, I know in some of the other places where they have matching funds, the Ethics Commission police, polices it, um, and they've you know had very few instances. I think one in each election, they had an instance of one person trying to do something erroneous, and they caught it and and dealt with it. So um, you know, like all elections, you have to have oversight. Um, and I think you know, going back to what else you could do around money in politics, um, oversight is a huge one. You know, transparency. We might not be able to overturn Citizens United with our current Congress, um, but we certainly could uh, infuse a lot more transparency into where all the money is coming from. You know, it shouldn't be hard to see where not only, you know, what the name of that organization is, but who's donating to it. Um, And that would go a long way, I think, towards public trust um, is if we just made that automatic, not down to the city level, right? Not even just the federal level, um, but they make it way too hard to figure out where the money is coming from. And it creates a lot of distrust, even when things are completely above board and the, the money flow is, you know, appropriate or at least legal. Um, it, it should be more transparent. Yeah. I think we're seeing that now. Like if you look at the campaign disclosure documents, even of local candidates, you'll see individual donations by specific people that are called out, but yep. then sometimes there's an organization um, you know, citizens for improving our schools, but you don't know who's behind that. And and suddenly, you know, that could be a ten thousand dollar donation. And I think it, it's cloaked by design. Um, I think that's how they set it up. Yeah. And like I said, even if it's even if you tracked that back and it all made perfect sense and you you felt comfortable with what was happening, the fact that it's hidden implies something's wrong. So even when it's not, it creates distrust. And I think trust in government because of this lack of transparency, um, even when things are, again, all all above board, it it just creates a lot of distrust. And that's not helpful to our political process um, because that, again, goes back to disengagement. I can't make a difference. It's not going to matter. You know, the money is going to win. And, I, you know, why should I try? And I think that's one of the things we fight against the most. Have you I've, I've heard some people offering proposals that let's just say that the government would give every candidate. I'm going to make up a number ten thousand dollars or twenty thousand dollars. Has anyone ever tried to implement a solution like that? Absolutely. That's called clean elections where you do a grant for public financing. Mm -hmm. Um, They do it uh, in Arizona, um, although they actually were trying to convert to democracy dollars in one of their locations. Um, They also uh, do it back east. I forget the name of the city, so I won't misspeak. Um, We also had an initiative on the ballot for um, clean elections here in San Diego that fell fell short at city council. Um, And so the idea behind that is, is once you qualify, you get a, a grant. Um, so that you spend all your time campaigning. Um, and so and we looked at that proposal as well. Um, John is a really great guy. He's been working on that for years. Um, we just felt as an organization, we just couldn't walk away from that citizens engagement boost that Seattle got with the democracy dollars. So the idea that the campaign donations flow through the citizens and reinforce community support and increase citizen engagement. We just, we thought that was really powerful. And so we chose that as our mechanism for the initiative that we supported. Um, But yeah, it's, there's a couple ways to do the matching funds, which New York has done for so long and they've just expanded their program because it's been very powerful. 
Um, so they have used matching funds program for, I want to say 20 years, uh, where if you give $25 to a candidate, the state matches it and they just, or city matches it. I apologize. And they in, had just increased that. Um, and it's allowed people to run that they tell these great stories. In fact, to the current, uh, AG, she, um, uh, was a democracy or she was a matching funds candidate, um, when she ran for her first office. Um, so it's just allowed people to run that, that didn't have the stepping stones. Um, public financing, um, can be a real vehicle to change the candidate pool. Well, we just got another question that came in on the chat line from um, one of our great podcast supporters, Steve Dow. And he asked, uh, why not just require that only personal donations that can be made and you put a cap on what that can be, like $10,000 as an example? Why not just limit it to personal? It depends on which. um, So you're kind of going back to Citizens United (laughs) where the, you know, the federal courts decided that you couldn't stifle the speech of a corporation. And so therefore you couldn't exclude them from the political process. Um, However, at the city level, you're only allowed to take from individuals um, for your personal campaign up to a certain amount. You're not allowed to take, take from companies, Um, but companies are still allowed to give to outside expenditures committees or, you know, at the state level, you know, PACs and things like that. So, Mm -hmm. um, so there is just a, there's a federal restriction that, that still allows participation at the corporate level that we can't get past um, unless we change federal law. Wow. So many different ways to come at this. I mean, like the, the idea of giving every candidate the same amount of money, I always thought was a flawed model because it would invite a lot of certainly candidates to come forward that otherwise couldn't because they couldn't fundraise. Mm-hmm. But it would also invite a lot of publicity seekers or in some cases, joke candidates to come forward. But the democracy dollars puts the power more in the voters hand. And they can deliver it to whom they think is Correct. best. That model seems a lot better. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, because then you also like, how do you know? How do you limit the number of candidates they're going to get the ten thousand dollars? Like, how do you yeah. choose which candidates get it? And how much money does the city actually have to give ten thousand dollars to a hundred people? It's just, yeah, yeah. For me, that yeah doesn't make as much sense either. Um, yeah, Steve Dow chimed in again. He goes, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but corporations aren't people. You know, that's always <laughs> the, uh, the, the attack line on Citizens United. Um, right. Let's jump around to another topic. Let, let's talk about open primaries. And I know here in the state of California, um, some of the parties make their primaries open. Others are closed. Mm-hmm. Um, break this down for me and, and share with me how by making them open, it's going to get corruption out of the system. Well, the key argument for open primaries is that we as taxpayers pay for the elections, right? Elections aren't Mm -hmm. cheap to run, especially, you know, fair and and uh, well-organized ones. And when you close the primary election because of party preferences, um, you're using taxpayer dollars to support a private entity, which political parties are private entities. Um, And by opening them, you're making sure that if I'm a registered X and you know that particular election I prefer a different candidate maybe an independent candidate maybe a really uh, maybe somebody who's really focused on the environment maybe a green party candidate and um, I want to vote for them I can because I am the voter I'm the taxpayer I'm paying for the election I should be able to vote for who I want to vote for 
Um, and there's a number of places around the country that that's actually on the ballot right now. So, you know, California, we already have open primaries and there's a lot of places looking to follow suit. Um, they're mixing the open primary approach with ranked choice voting and trying to pass that at the state level um, through mm. successful ballot initiative campaigns. And just so if anybody's watching who isn't super familiar, then maybe they're a younger voter. If you go to if you're registered as party X and you get your ballot, you're not going to be able to see any of the other candidates of different parties. You will only get to vote for candidates that match that same level. So open primaries basically make it so that all the candidates, no matter what party they are, you'll get to vote for them regardless of what your party affiliation is. So. Just a bit, I just wanted to be clear for those who are yeah. maybe a little bit younger and newer. No, that's really good. Because in some states, you're not even allowed to ask for a different ballot. You're literally excluded completely. Um, here you can ask for a different ballot, but... Yeah. Well, I think the, the devil's advocate argument is, is that you, if, if you wanted to, um, you could vote in the other party and try to sabotage the other side. Um, mm-hmm. But do people really do that? You know, I haven't read enough of the research to know if that's a challenge. Um, It seems to me that candidates would be really unhappy about that because they're showing in that primary um, when money being such a focus is how they are able to fundraise for the general. Yeah. So if you had a candidate underperforming in a primary because somebody was attempting to do that, it would be a huge challenge. Um, But I think the solution to that is most of these states that are doing it are doing it along with a ranked choice voting approach. Mm. So if you mix those two functionalities together, you have the ability to have open primaries, but you're also ranking all the candidates. Um, So you're not able to kind of game the system when you have a a multi-vote approach to it. Interesting. So let's say you're registered in one particular party and Mm -hmm. it was open primary. So every candidate is there. You could stack rank them Mm -hmm. and intermingle the parties in the stack ranking based on whatever your preference is. Yep. Exactly. That's the idea. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, Right. Because, I mean, sometimes there are candidates that are in other parties that are reasonable, that you might consider that are better than candidates in your existing party. Um, But we're so tribal, you know, Uh, this would break that down, which I think would be really helpful. Well, it makes you have to focus on what they were doing policy-wise. Mm-hmm. And, and the funny thing is, is not everybody is like on the polar extremes. I'd say most people are somewhere in the middle. So it's it's I think to have two parties that kind of pull people into different camps is quite uh, it just doesn't represent nature. Usually things happen on a bell curve and usually most people are in the middle. So it seems kind of fit silly that we have these two camps. It's like if this frees us up, that allows for the majority of people to voice, you know, where they want and they could go left or right. And personally, I can say that I don't even know what my party affiliation really is anymore. I've voted in so many different uh, campaigns for different people of different parties. And I had to re-register every single time if I wanted to register. I knew I was like, okay, I'm voting for this guy. I had to re-register so that I had, you know, I could vote on that ballot. And I, I it's, it's still somewhat doable. Again, most people probably aren't going to go through that many hoops just to be able to vote. And I think that's the benefit of, uh, you know, of what we're proposing here is if you do the ranked choice voting with, uh, you know, all these other things that we're proposing. Yeah, you, you don't have to jump through so many hoops. You just show up at the ballot box and you go, hey, I like that guy. He's honest. He's got integrity. He's, you know, wh- you know, whatever, whatever your values are. Right. You get to vote for what you think uh, best represents yourself. So. 
you know, I 100% agree. And it's it's interesting because I've, I've seen polls that have been done where they ask people, you know, what party do you identify with? And more people identify as independent than they do as Republican or they do as Democrat. And the system is so set up for the red and the blue, but there's all these people in the middle of the bell curve that are independent that they're getting pushed aside. Like even in California, I'm a no party preference voter. Um, and I, I wasn't allowed to vote in the Republican primary, but I only could vote in the Democratic Party a primary if I requested a ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, there's all this hoop jumping and finagling just so you can vote for people. I mean, I like that idea of just throwing all the candidates on the table and then let me rank them one, two, three, four, five. Um, that would be a just a way better system. Mm-hmm. Yep. Preaching to the um, choir. <laughs> so, um, yeah, preaching to the choir. Exactly. So let, let's um, you know, we're, we're about 45 minutes in here. Let's go a couple uh, more topics and. Um, gosh, the, the one was interesting is this notion of closing the revolving door. Mm. And that made me think of the congressman, and I can't remember his name, but I remember he was the Republican whip and he lost in an election a few cycles ago that shocked everyone. And then he ended up going to working for a lobbying firm and now he's making a gazillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, leveraging all of his influence and his relationships in Congress. What the heck was that guy's name? Um, but he was, yeah, the, the, he's not the only one. <laughs> yeah, There's a lot of them. Yeah. So how do you, how do you stop that? I mean, if, if someone is voted out and they get a job, I mean, how do you prevent them from taking a job? Well, it's a great question. And yeah, can, I mean, past limits that if you're going to work in a federal elected capacity, that there needs to be time that passes before you can work in a in a lobbyist capacity. Um, the and, city of San Diego has a law. I believe it requires people to wait a year, might be longer. Um, so all it takes is both legislation and enforcement. Right. So mm-hmm. it, it's not good enough to say you can't do this. You also have to enforce it. Um, and when people are, you see, skirting that line and, oh, well, maybe I'm consulting and I'm only doing it 20 percent of the time or, you know, it just mm-hmm. it needs to be written tightly and it needs to be enforced with teeth. Um, and the idea behind that, of course, is working in a federal capacity, you have access to, you know, people and contracts that, um, you know, you're you're entrusted with and to take all that knowledge and immediately monetize it is really unfair to, you know, us in the public. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, two, three years down the line, you know, maybe that's okay. Once enough time has passed that it doesn't become this, I'm going to take this job for a year in the government in order to get this great consulting gig. You just don't want one to feed the other. Um, And so you could, you could very easily pass laws to restrict this and then give it a little bit of teeth. The other interesting thing about this is people always talk about term limits. And this is something that I have changed my opinion on several times Um, and term limits and lobbying a little bit go hand in hand because I, you know, can't get it out of my head. You know, I've been practicing. I'm a commercial interior designer by day when I'm not volunteering and 20 years in, I feel like I finally know what I'm doing. Like I'm finally relatively good at my job. So I look at a elected official and I think there's a lot to learn and a lot to be good at. And don't you want experience? Like, isn't there value in that? In every other profession, there's value in experience. And yet we 
constantly say, nope, kick him out after one or two terms. You know, that's better. We don't want to get him entrenched. Um, And so I I struggle with that. But at the same time, after 20, 30 years, are you really bringing the best ideas? Is that really competitive anymore? Has has the position lost the um, enthusiasm and and authority that it could have for its constituents, right? If that elected person is there for too long. Um, So I really feel like this is one of those situations where we really need to find a happy medium. And we really should figure out what's a good amount of time for someone to serve where their knowledge and experience benefit their constituents is again, if they're being voted back into office, right? The voters need to have the influence to kick them out if they're doing a bad job. But if what's a good amount of time for them to serve that the voters get the benefit of that experience. And what's that tipping point at which that seat is no longer competitive. And we just, we really, really need to see some change in order for, for overall fairness um, of the situation. And I think lobbying and, and, um, lobbying and term limits kind of you have to be able to figure out how to walk that line and i just want to also appeal to those who are again maybe a little not sure about how the revolving door works just uh just a little bit of education because i am a teacher like how do i not teach in moments like these um so if you have like a big you know entity powerful entity it could be a company it could be a union it doesn't really matter and they have uh some law that they don't like because it's negatively affecting them they hire somebody called a lobbyist who would then go and uh, talk to somebody in Congress and say, hey, uh, can you get rid of this law for us? Or here, can we actually wrote the law. And if you could actually just sneak it in, like staple it to the law that you guys are trying to pass right now, that would be great. Um, And why would the, you know, person in Congress want to do that? Well, you know, not only are they able to get campaign donations, like we've already discussed, from these uh, powerful organizations, but also, you know, when they're finished with Congress, if they have a term limit, let's say two or whatever, then yeah, the moment they get out of office, they get to, um, you know, increase their salary like by tenfold, maybe fiftienfold. Um, so they go from making like, you know, hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars a year. It's like, oh, great. And guess, guess why? And this is the thing that people understand. Well, why did people in Congress become such great lobbyists? It's because they've all these friends in Congress. They know all these people. They They've made all these social connections. They go, they play golf with these people. So it's easy to become a lobbyist once you leave Congress because you're so good friends with everybody and you can be like, hey, hey, I'm a lobbyist now, but we're still good friends, right? So, hey, there's this big, powerful organization that I'm now representing that wants this new law that wants to be passed. And that's kind of what we're talking about. So represent us as part of our anti-corruption act is is saying, look, if you throw in like, I, I can't remember what it is now. Was it like four I think it was like four years, three or four years that you can't go from Congress and become a lobbyist. You have to wait three or four years. And by then the water's cooled and like your connections have kind of dried up a bit. Maybe that's the hope. And you can't make X much more money if you take the role as well in order to keep that from becoming a reason to take a job and then, and then to leave it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's kind of hard to bribe someone and you're like, Hey, I'll get you a job in like six years. Just wait. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's, you know, sort of similar. It's analogous to, you know, these non-compete clauses in the private sector, you know, where Mm -hmm. you agree you're not going to quit and go work for a competitor, but the, the law has been kind of chipping away at that and saying that those really, violate the freedom of the individual to switch jobs. Um, But here it's kind of the opposite, you know, Um, where we're trying to create a wedge between people taking a job that could be 
and the, well, I guess you could say sort of competitive. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting way to think of it. Yeah. Um, here, here's a thought I want to put on the table. And this is something I've thought about a lot. And you know, we're talking about how do you get money out of politics? And the fact is, is that politics is so influential in how our economy is structured and the regulatory environment, et cetera. Sometimes I wonder if we need to get rather than getting money out of politics, we need to get politics out of money. Maybe the government has too much power and control over the economy that it's naturally going to attract, you know, all of these people that are going to want to take advantage of that system and distort it to their own ends. Um, what are your thoughts looking at it from that approach? I mean, I, I've had an idea about this, but this is, it's not really about represent us as much because this isn't really a part of our platform. But uh, just personally, I, I, I think that this is like the age old question of, okay, uh, Republicans and Democrats, right? This is part of the two party system. Like Democrats want the big party and Republicans want to destroy the, the government and have less restrictions for, for business, right? Um, oh, and that's what they say. That's what they <laughs> that's say. That's what they mean, though. <laughs> right. But I mean, really, I, the ideal world, you, you don't want to have so many restrictive regulations against you know uh, companies, but you also don't want companies going out and polluting and doing all sorts of horrible things either. So you, you want to have a happy medium. And if, if the argument is that the government's already too big, you know, then like, how do you deflate the government and still maintain big business? Like, mm-hmm. you, you, it's, that's not going to fix the system, right? Um, so that's the argument that I would, I would throw out there is you can't just think that you're going to blow up the government and all of a sudden, you know, you're going to have like a, a libertarian paradise. It's like, the, well, you'll have, plen- you'll have tons of pollution. You'll have tons of people, you know, doing all sorts of horrible things because, you know, they have power and influence. They can do what they want, you know? So I would say you need to have regulations. You need to have some measure of government that's going to, you know, put the big powerful influences of the business in check. But, you know, if we can somehow, uh, you know, also loosen the strength of the government at the same time as loosening the strength of the, these big powerful influencers, that's the ideal. But that's a, that's a hard thing to do, and I think that's a, that's a harder campaign to fight than represent yeah. us is, is trying to make bigger. that. Yeah, yeah. Way bigger. Well, and yeah. I, think, I think the words that you just used, the idea of, you know, big versus little or powerful versus weak, you know, I think all of that kind of misses the picture about what represent us is focused on, which is the government should be reflective of the will of the people. So if the will of the people is not big nor little and somewhere in the middle, then that's what it should be. If the will of the people is we want this to be regulated because the harms are too severe for futures, you know, for, for future generations, then it should be regulated. And I think what's wrong with the system is that it's not reflective of the will of the people. So when you're arguing about how something should be constructed, you're talking about how one party or another party or one, you know, financial group or another financial group wants to see things. And that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is make sure we actually have a functioning democracy that is representative. And in doing so, we will find our answers. We will we will find what that right policy is. And I think that's what people want. They want that trust to be restored, to know that, you know what, that regulation, it's been well-crafted and it's doing what it's supposed to do. That law, it's fair. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Um, they, they want it to be equitably 
everyone to be treated equitably and justice to be equitable. Um, and I think that that's the idea behind giving more power to the collective United States citizens, as opposed to these special interest groups, is as we then would have a representative democracy. And that, that, that was how we get to our right answer there. Exactly. Right it's we the people, not we the corporations, right? Not we the unions. <laughs> right. Well, th- this is a fantastic conversation. We're getting near an hour. Um, so I'd, I'd like to you know, just ask you, what other things are we missing? Um, what are some other key points that your organization is really pushing forward on? Right now, it's it's all about getting out the vote and, and free and fair elections. And um, that looks different in every state because every state is um, not regulated by the federal government how they run their elections. So the states decide, um, which means that how you are or aren't collecting your ballots is not regulated by, you know, any sort of federal law. It's all left to the states. Um, And I think that, you know, we have a lot of good elected officials across the country here trying to make sure that we have, you know, fantastic elections and doing all their due diligence. Um, But then we've also seen through the years where people fall short in certain cities and states where, you know, ballots don't get picked up from the boxes and which we heard about the last time or machines fail and people aren't able to vote um, where things come in the mail too late, um, which happened this last time around in some of the primaries for people to vote, even though they registered very far in advance. So um, right now, one of the things represent us is, is very focused on is working with a lot of the places around the country to make sure people vote early, um, make sure that uh, elected officials or election officials in different parts of the country where the laws do vary so greatly as to how elections are run um, are doing the best they can to um, make sure that elections are fair and outcomes are properly tallied and that there is as little foreign interference as possible. And so represent us is very focused on that um, right, right on. now. And uh, that's, uh, that is very important. And right now that is one of our primary focuses. And quality control is obviously super important as well. Like once you have to do like a recount, like, you know, how are you, like how many times are you sampling these votes to make sure that it's actually accurate? Right. You know, so these are all things that, you know, it, it just absolutely needs to happen. And you would hope there would be this independent body that's not biased, is somehow in control of doing this. And, and that's we have to have trust in that system. Right. That, that's what we want. We want to have people restoring their confidence in the way that this process works. We want it to be open. We want everyone to be able to participate. We don't want any restrictions except for, you know, obviously making sure that who pe- the people who are voting are legally able to vote. Like that's, I think the only restriction there really is, but if you can get everybody registered to vote, I mean, that's, that's another great you know thing to do, right? If you can get everybody who is legally able to vote, the ability to vote, you know, the more the merrier. It's like, we want everybody's vote to matter. We want it to count. And that's exactly why represent us is here. We got so many different ways that we're going to go about doing it. And again, the way to start is at the grassroots level and the city level, we pass it in the city level. Then we got representatives like that have our back on the city level. Once you pass on the city level, you have representatives, then they can go up to the state that also are going to be reflecting our values and we can pass it on the state level. And once enough states pass these laws, it's it's just a domino effect. It's it's like there's a certain threshold that once you reach it, it just it becomes it becomes federal law. And that's kind of what we're pushing for is the long we're we're pushing the long game. This isn't this isn't like a a short sprint. This is a marathon that we're in. And I mean, obviously, I've been in this for nine years and I'm not going anywhere. 
<laughs> well, I think the work you guys are doing is fantastic. I think what you're trying to accomplish is something that so many people are desperate for. Sometimes they don't fully understand what's happening. Many people understand exactly what's happening, but don't know how to solve it. Um, you guys are really, I think, doing yeoman's work here to improve the system for everyone. Um, how, how can people get involved? How can they connect with you? Um, what's the best way for them to reach out? Nick's in charge of our Facebook page right now with some help from Tony. (laughs) Find us, our San Diego chapter on Facebook. Um, You can also go to representsandiego.org and um, sign up to, you know, get newsletters from us. Um, We do meet once a month and I'm super excited about our meeting next month. Um, We're going to have the uh, author of Unrig. Uh, how to fix our democracy, a book about fixing our democracy, where he highlights in a graphic novel format all these success stories of other campaigns around the country who have passed ranked choice voting and democracy dollars and anti gerrymandering initiatives and gotten money out of politics. Um, and he's going to be there to speak to that on September 10th. Um, so if you go to our website, you can, uh, or our Facebook page, you can sign up for that because, like I said before, getting people um, committed to doing one small thing to um, reform our democracy is kind of the, the hardest part. Um, and it's also the most important part. Um, so, 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 you know, while we do a lot of support for different initiatives and getting involved around the city, a big part of what we do is just informing people um, and letting them know how they can make a difference. That's how I got started out. We started off with just some picket signs on the corner. <laughs> just like in politics, I can't afford a lobbyist. Can you, you know, a little, you know, just mm-hmm. curious things like that. But, you know, like, obviously we would love as much volunteers as, and as help as we can get here in San Diego with our, our local chapter. But by and large, again, what we talked about earlier, the most important thing anybody that can do is to go to represent.us, represent us. It's the national website. Watch. There's some really awesome videos. Read about read the Anti-Corruption Act that we have that we have drafted that we could obviously it wouldn't just get passed if we threw it to Congress. We have to start with the grassroots level. So but if you can read it, you can see what we represent our are being represented by. Um, you can share those videos on Facebook. You can, uh, you know, comment on the posts that we make. So it makes it more visible in the domain, right? So it's like, there's so many ways that you can be involved. You don't even have to be out there collecting signatures and being a part of the chapter to help. You can just be helping by just spreading awareness because awareness is the key right now. The more people who are aware of this campaign, the more successful it's going to be. And, and the more support we have for all the local chapters. So, yeah, if, if, if somebody doesn't feel super inspired by this video, this podcast, to go and join our local chapter, by all means, just join our national you know, campaign, man. Share these videos. Get the word out there. This is how we can change the game so that the, the, the things that we care about the most will be heard by the people who are supposed to represent us. Right on. I mean, Amy and Nick, you guys are doing great work. I really appreciate it. I'm going to include the links in all the show notes so um, people can access it. Um, well, the video is live streamed on Facebook and YouTube. It'll be the recording will be saved there. Um, it'll be posted on all the audio only podcast platforms very shortly. So, um, yeah, hopefully a lot of people get inspired by what we're talking about. And hopefully we'll see some more uh, support for your organization. But thank you Thanks, so much for joining me. This has been great. Yeah, thank you very much. 
Thanks, John. Yeah, happy to be here. So thanks. So 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 grateful you invited us here. This is amazing. Awesome. Well, let's. Uh, good luck to you, and let's uh, let's connect maybe after the election, and let's see uh, what what the the newest things are. Right. That would be great. Sounds great. All right. Take care, folks. Bye bye. All right. See you.